Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Discovering Disabilities in Dearborn. My name is Ali Darwish, and I'm one of the hosts here. And uh, we also have some other amazing hosts, if they'd like to introduce themselves real quickly. Hi, my name is Mohamed Awada. Hello, my name is Rashad Al-Ghul. And today we have the pleasure of meeting with a scholar who doesn't need much of an introduction, who I personally look up to on many levels whenever I have any religious question, any question about life. I just go on YouTube and I start searching up on his videos because he just has amazing content. So we're honored to have our very own uh, Sayyid Muhammad Baqir Khazwini, um, who will be talking about disabilities and inshallah will be giving a religious perspective on disabilities. Um, one thing we discovered, Sayyidna, when we plan on making this episode was there wasn't a lot of information on disabilities, let alone a religious perspective on disabilities. So we wanted to touch on this point um, and delve into it with you with a bunch of questions. Hopefully we won't bombard you too much, but yeah. So if you can introduce yourself to the audience, tell them a little bit about yourself, um, we would really appreciate that. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and good evening. It's my great honor to be with you on this very unique and special podcast, Brother Ali, Brother Muhammad and Brother Rashad. Um, I've known you for quite some time now and uh, Alhamdulillah, we have a wonderful relationship. And uh, I do um, witness that you ask many questions about life, about religion, and that indicates that you have that thirst for knowledge. So I really commend you for that. And I commend your team for conducting such a program. You know, this is highly needed. It's very important. Uh, we need to raise more awareness about it. And Islam has a lot to say about, you know, disabilities. So my name is Sayyid Muhammad Baqir Al-Qazwini. Um, I studied at the seminary of Qom in Iran for 10 years. It is the largest Shia seminary in the world. I had a wonderful experience there, spiritually, academically, educationally. I also uh, studied sociology at the University of Michigan in, uh, in Ann Arbor. So, you know, combining between the seminary studies and the Western academic studies is a wonderful opportunity that the Almighty God has blessed me with. And we're all Michigan graduates. Uh, okay, wonderful. Nice. I didn't know that. Go yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> go blue, go blue. Yeah, so uh, with all your knowledge, we hope to ask you some questions. I think I'm going to let Rashad uh, start with the first question. We can just jump straight into it um, to learn more about this uh, very important topic. Absolutely. Assalamu alaikum, Sayyid. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Um, so the first question, I guess, is uh, a, a general introductory question. Um, but what does Islam have to say about disabilities in general, whether it be mentioned in the Quran or any hadith or you know, any uh, any of the literature. Um, if you could just speak about that a little bit. And if I may interject, when we say disabilities, we're talking in the broadest sense possible. We're talking about intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, all kinds of disabilities. Um, just And we can just jump into the nuances a little later, but I think each, each uh, disability deserves its own episode. But Absolutely. of course, it's too much to cover. So just right now, broadly speaking on disabilities, that's what we're referring to. The Holy Quran does actually refer um, to the disabled. When we have this discussion on what does Islam say about disabilities, it's always 
important to start with the Holy Quran because that is the Holy Scripture in Islam. So we find that the Quran makes numerous references to people who struggle with disabilities. The one that I'd like to share with you is the one that you find in Surah An-Nur, chapter 24, verse 61. In this chapter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the blind, the lame, the one who has trouble walking, they have a disability in their legs, and also the one who's ill, the one who's sick. Now, what does the Quran say here about those who have a disability? The people of Medina before Islam, they would have a separate table for those who are disabled. When we have dinner, when I invite people over, I would not allow the disabled to eat with me. This was the norm and the culture of Medina. So they were not welcome. They were considered as people who are second-class citizens, people who were not so welcome, people who had a spell on them. Some of them even had these misunderstandings. So they were not welcome to these meals, to these invitations. Now, when the Prophet ﷺ migrated from Mecca to Medina, that changed. He advocated for their rights. So now, the people of Medina, they did the opposite. In order to show respect for the disabled, they would make a special table for them, giving them special meals. Like if you're blind and you join everyone, maybe you don't know exactly what food is before you and you may not get the best bite, the best slice. Or if you had other disabilities, that would hinder uh, you, know, you taking full part in that meal or in that invitation. The Quran comments here. The Quran is basically saying to the people of Medina, we appreciate you know, the fact that you are giving them a special meal, a special table. However, that may still make some of them feel uncomfortable oh. because you are still put to the side. You're not part of mainstream society. Even though now people have good intentions, they're trying to respect you. They're giving you your own meal. But that hurts you because in the end, as a disabled person in Medina, you'd say, but I'm not part of the gathering. I'm not really part of the invitation. The Quran comments here and says, the blind, the lame, these categories of the disabled, let them eat with you. Don't give them their own special table where they feel left out. Make sure they feel they're part of your society. They're part of your gatherings. They're part of your invitations. There's no blame on them if they want to participate in your own meals. So the Quran came to break this barrier that they have to be put in a special category to the point where they don't feel part of the community anymore. Make them feel welcome and take care of them. So you find here the Quran gives its beautiful stance to include the disabled people in the community. And that's just fascinating. That's remarkable. I didn't know the interpretation of that verse or the historical context behind it. Um, it's interesting because we always see that when people make a mistake like that, putting people on the fringes of society, they want to compensate by doing something else. 
but by them compensating, they're really, you know, repeating the same mistake in a exactly. way. Exactly. So all what people with disabilities want to feel is included. They just want to feel like they're a part of society, whatever normal means, you know. And you subhanAllah, 14 centuries ago, the Quran highlights this reality. They want to feel included, include them. So we know you have good intentions. You want to compensate for that. But in the end, you're still excluding them. And that's not appropriate. Okay, so this brings up another question that I had. So 1400 years ago, that's great. But when I went to Hajj two years ago, when I had the privilege and honor of going, I had an experience that wasn't very pleasant personally. So I saw a man doing tawaf, the circumambulation, I believe it's translated in English. Um, just going around the Hajj on a wheelchair. And apparently he wasn't supposed to be there. Um, I started rolling him there because he was getting tired, obviously his, his arms were fatigued. So I was rolling him there and I, I didn't understand a word he was saying. He was like from Indonesia or maybe China. Uh, SubhanAllah, in, in Hajj it's beautiful. You're around like- you see people from all around All the over world. the world, yeah. But anyways, uh, I'm just rolling him on, on this wheelchair and then the, the soldier comes up to me. He tells me, he, he has to be there. I looked there, wherever there was, and it was far away. He had to do tawaf outside of the outside of the cube, you know, outside of where the Kaaba is. Which makes the distance very far. It makes it very far, one, and it becomes questionable if his actions even count. Now, that's a whole other discussion. You can touch on that maybe a little bit. But why should he feel... Excluded like that in such a in, in such a holy place, you know, do you feel like Islam is kind of going backwards in a way with how we're dealing with people in dis with disabilities uh, or certain as certain people in Islam are going backwards in this regard? So I just wanted to get your perspective on, on this point. Thank you for sharing that experience. Unfortunately, in many parts of the Middle East or countries that are populated by majority Muslims, you don't really find the true teachings of Islam. So we have a challenge in many parts of the Middle East where society is not that accommodating to people who have disabilities. People quickly judge them. In fact, I know in some societies, in some, in, in, in some Middle Eastern villages or cities, anyone with a disability, they quickly call that person crazy or they put a very derogatory term. So you don't find that much respect, even though the Quran and the religion of Islam, they're based on respecting people with, with disabilities to the point of inclusion, you know, include them in your everyday life. So there is a lot of ignorance in these communities. And when you see, um, you know, um, encounters like that, incidents like that, they're not really reflective of the Holy Quran and the religion of Islam. Now, if I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, the authorities who've set up the Grand Mosque in that way, one thing comes to my mind. At the Hajj season, the pilgrimage season, it can get very crowded. I've gone six times to the pilgrimage and I can attest to the heavy crowds that will circle around the Kaaba. I should have included that point. You know, maybe sometimes for logistical reasons, if you have a person in a wheelchair who will go inside the heavy crowds, and let's say, God forbid, a stampede happens or somebody falls or trips because of the presence of that wheelchair. It could create a hazard. It could cause a tragedy there. It could be the case that this is their line of thinking and that's why they've asked them to do the tawaf outside of that area for safety reasons. I don't know. 
possibly I think that is the case. That's exactly it. And I forgot to mention, actually, it was a safety hazard because everybody's very close-knit, and you can imagine him on the wheelchair is probably running people's feet over. So um, when you have tens of thousands of people in a small place, and they're all circling around the Kaaba, and you have someone in a wheelchair, it poses a, th a, a safety threat. I just wish they had, like, he had his own lane closer to... So he can have the same experience as everybody else. I, I just wish that they did it closer. There was one proposal um, to basically build several, several floors, circular floors that go around the Kaaba. I actually once saw that proposal by an engineer. And one of them would be dedicated to people who need to use a wheelchair or people who have disabilities. Um, so I think there are some efforts in trying to bring a viable solution but, but you're right. I mean, imagine if you're um, in, 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 in the shoes of a person like that and you have to do the tawaf from a very distant place and you're wondering, is my tawaf counted or not? So that is a valid concern. But at the same time, there might be some safety issues that have to be taken into consideration. Okay. I know we went off on a little tangent. Oh, it's all very interesting. Um, Hamad, I think you wanted to ask the next question. Yeah, so just uh, we were just talking about how um, things are in Hajj, but what do you think we could do, like changes to implement in our own community that uh, would help people with disabilities and just uh, kind of reaching that point that you were talking about um, in your or earlier example of like incorporating everybody instead of tr trying to like overcompensate or do something that's not uh, uh, needed or like something. I personally never knew this was a significant issue in the community until a few years ago a brother from this community came to see me in, in my office. He was going through a lot, through depression. He even had some suicidal thoughts. And when I asked him what was the source of his anxiety, his depression, he told me a few years before that he developed a disability. And after he started to struggle with this disability, he noticed that his friends and even some family members would mock him. And that really destroyed him. He collapsed. Like when he saw his best friends view him differently now because of this disability or them mocking him, bullying him even sometimes, he felt suicidal. Up until that day, I mean, I knew this was an issue all around the world, but I really didn't know how serious this was. And people will actually do that? I told him, like, your best friends, family members? And then I, I told him, are these people Muslim? Like, seriously, they would do something like that? Instead of showing you support, empathy, sympathy, they would bully you? So he said, yes, Sayyid. Unfortunately, that's what pushed me to this very, very, you know, dangerous mental health state. So after he shared with me that experience, I realized that we need to do more to address this. I can't, you know, assume that people should realize that they need to take care of the disabled. You need to be forceful about this. You need to bring it up in your sermons, in your encounters. People need to hear this, that this is not okay. This is a violation of humanity, a violation of the Quran, a violation of your religion for you to bully someone like that. So that, that really caught my attention and it just proved to me that here, even in our community, we need to do more. We need to raise awareness. We need to say to people and the families, this is not okay. You can't bully someone because they developed a disability. That is a grave sin in the eyes of God. 
And pe- I, I don't think some people realize this. And if I may mention, it's very ironic to me because like, we all know somebody who has a disability, either in our immediate family or extended family, a close friend, a cousin, you know, like we all have somebody in our family, in our lives. Just statistically speaking, there are, there's over 1 billion people in the world with, with a disability. That's like one in seven. Obviously that's an underestimation. So we all know somebody with a disability. So to treat people like that, when you have your own experiences, that's not to mention that individuals have di- disabilities. We're not talking about a small number of people. Many people have disabilities that are, that are either undiagnosed or they are diagnosed. So I just think as a society, we need to be more compassionate, understanding, and, and just kind to people. And if you want to ask a question, so if a person, if, if we see, just to address your question about being more accommodating, I think what we need to do is be genuine with how we approach individuals with disabilities. If we see somebody in our community who has a disability and we're curious because they, they appear differently, you know, they, they look different than us, that's fine. I think if we approach it with the intention of asking a question for the sake of asking a genuine question, I think that that's not a bad thing. But if you're asking the question to mock somebody, to, to make fun, that's when I think it becomes problematic. But I think we should jump on to the next question now. Um, so... Suppose we get to a time in which genetic testing becomes so prevalent that the majority of disabilities can be prevented. And I think we're getting closer to that time today, right? Um, There's some ethical questions about that. But anyway, so suppose that we can screen a person for Down syndrome beforehand. Is this an appropriate thing to do? Does Islam support this notion of preventing a disability beforehand? So kind of taking a preemptive measure to not have any disabilities in our community. The point of asking this question bef- before I, uh, sorry, just one more just one more thing. The point of this question is, if Islam supports this idea that we should do genetic testing, doesn't it, isn't it kind of assuming that people with disabilities are lesser? But I'll just let you take it away from... No, no, these are very valid questions. You know, God created us with the intellect and the religion of Islam encourages us to contemplate, to think, to advance, to understand our surroundings, to find cures for ailments. In fact, in one famous tradition, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family, said that there is a cure for every illness. When the Prophet says that, he is encouraging his followers to look for that cure. Otherwise, why tell us? He has said, that God has put a cure, a treatment for every illness. We humans are encouraged to go and find those cures, to use the intellect that that God has given us to discover new things about us. You know, one reason why there are natural disasters, there's evil in the world, is to push the human being to use his intellectual capacities. If God creates you in a perfect state, you become lazy. You don't work hard. You're like, okay, everything's available. I have no threats. There's nothing that would endanger me. So I don't need to work hard. You become complacent, idle, and lazy. God wants to motivate the human being to always work, do research, appreciate the intellect that you have, discover new things. So one way to motivate us is to put us in a world where not everything is perfect. You know, when, when, when there are natural disasters like earthquakes, this motivates the people to think, invent new, a new type of technology and, you know, uh, create earthquake 
um, proof buildings. That's beautiful. That's one way to encourage the, f the, the flourishing of the sciences. And we know how much Islam recommends people to seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave, literally. So if we reach an era where we have the scientific capability through genetic engineering to cure a lot of disabilities or avoid them, would Islam support that or not? Absolutely, Islam would support that. Islam encourages us to look for solutions, to look for a cure. So there is nothing in the Quran or in the Hadith literature that would discourage us from taking that route. As long as it's ethical and we you know, are operating within the appropriate ethical limits, then we should definitely pursue that. In fact, we can even conclude from the spirit of Islam that this is a pursuit that God would reward you for because you're helping humanity. You're bringing cure to difficult conditions. Now, does this mean, if Islam supports this, does this mean that those the, the, the people who have disabilities, are they any lesser than other people? So now we have to come and find a cure for them and complete them? No, that's not the case. The reason why we have disabilities in the religion of Islam, that's our understanding of Quran and Hadith, is not because it's a curse on these people. It's not because it's a punishment for them. It's because God tries us in this world. We all go through different trials. Sometimes I may go through a financial crisis and that is my trial. Sometimes I may go through a family crisis, that's my trial. Sometimes I may go through a health crisis. A disability is a trial from God in this world which indicates that God actually loves you. Islam teaches you if you're being tried, that means God is coaching you. He's training you. He's strengthening your soul. He's strengthening your willpower. So people who are disabled, Islam considers them the friends of God, those who have been favored by God. And Islam promises huge compensation for them. People who live a life of disability, but they are decent people, you know. It's not like they committed crimes willfully and never repented. They are decent people. Islam tells us that God forgives them all of their sins and God elevates their status in heaven because of that disability. So a disability could actually be a blessing, not a curse. You, we may think that it's a curse, but in reality, it's a blessing. It's also a trial for the families. Yeah. We all claim we love God, we love humanity, we're decent, we're not selfish. God says, okay, I'll try you with a disabled person in your family or in your circle of friends. I want to see how are you going to take care of them? That's a trial for us. We could fail that trial or pass that trial. And disabilities also teach us how to love genuinely and compassionately. There's a dear member of our community here. One day after the Friday sermon, the Friday prayer, he wanted to see me. So he told me about his struggle with his disabled son. His son has a very severe disability where I think right now he's about 13, 14 years old, but you know, he may look like a toddler in his body size. So he said, me and my wife, initially we were devastated when our son was born that way and we discovered the disability. We even were a little bit angry at God, you know, why would you give us such a disabled child? 
He said, but over the years, I learned to see this as a blessing from God. And I learned to show care for my son. And then he started to cry. He told me, Sayyid, my disabled son taught me what true love is. I never knew what love is until I started to care for my son. Because I'm caring for a human whom I know cannot pay me back. See, sometimes you serve others, you do others favors, but in the back of your mind, you know, one day this relationship will come in handy, this person will pay me back. But when your son is disabled and paralyzed and can, cannot possibly help you in this life, but you show them care and compassion and love, that is true love, altruistic love. He told me, had it not been for my disabled son, I would have never tasted this type of love. So I'm infinitely thankful to God for this trial. It's very beautiful. And, and, and that is the perspective of Islam. It's not a curse on these people. It's not, it doesn't mean these people are any less. But Islam says, whenever you go through a trial, do look for a solution. That's part of your trial too. To work hard and look for a solution. So the fact that we can look for solutions through gen genetic engineering or other methods doesn't mean these people are any less. That's their trial. Let's help them with their trial. If we help them with their trial, God will still try, try them in other ways. So we are actually encouraged to pursue any solution that we can. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for your very thoughtful perspectives. If uh, Rashad and uh, Muhammad don't have uh, any other questions. On that same note of... Uh, that they're not any less, but uh, are there any special rights for individuals who do have disabilities? Absolutely. Islam does give them rights. Some of them are financial rights. Some of them are social rights, let's call them. Uh, community rights. So let me give you an example of the financial rights. Imam Ali salam, the successor of the Prophet and the cousin of the Prophet, and we have so much respect for his leadership, when he was ruling during those four years, he sent one of his men by the name of Malik al-Ashtar to be the governor of Egypt. Imam Ali writes him a letter instructing him how to rule justly. In his letter, which has survived throughout history, we have the text of his letter. In his letter, he tells Malik al-Ashtar, there are several categories of people in your you know, community, I want you to take care of. One of them are people with disabilities and long-term illnesses. I want you to give them a wage every single month. Put them on the payroll of the public funds. Now, Imam Ali said this in 7th century Arabia when there was no conception of taking care of such people. There was no king, emperor, or ruler at the time who had made it a government policy to sponsor these people, to spend on these people, to take care of them. Today, yes, we do, not 14 centuries ago. Imam Ali, acting on the teachings of Islam, he actually put them on the payroll. You give them a monthly salary, take care of them. Make sure they preserve their dignity and they don't need to beg and, you know, always, uh, you know, they're at the mercy of the people and at their pity where people have to come and give them. No, you give them the monthly salary. So that's one financial right that Islam gave, gave to them. Another right that Islam gave to people with disabilities, let's call this the community right or social right, 
is that the Prophet Muhammad in one interesting hadith, he says when you are walking, let's say in the street, and you pass by people with disabilities, don't fix your gaze at them. Yeah, that's, oh. a, that's a very deep point because that's one What thing. do you make of, of such an instruction from the Prophet? How do you understand it? Don't make them feel any different than you. Just exactly. because they appear diff differently. Then the Prophet comments. He says, because if you do that, it makes them feel sad. And you don't want to do that. So one of their rights, don't make them you know, feel that they're different. Don't give them an unusual look where they know, okay, I know why he's looking at me. And that's going to sadden them. That is the right of every disabled person in an Islamic community, uh, an ideally Islamic community. These, these are the teachings of the Prophet. Uh, another right that the Prophet gave is people who have disabilities, but they have, let's say, the intellectual capacity to lead, give them a chance to lead. An example is a man by the name of Ibn Umm Maktoum. Ibn Umm Maktoum was blind. Now the Arabs at the time, they thought that if you're blind, you're not fit to lead. Just sit home, don't get involved in social business. You have no active role. This was unfortunately their ignorant understanding. So what does the Prophet do to break this barrier? Sometimes when the Prophet would leave Medina, he goes on an expedition, like the expedition of Hudaybiyah, year six in the Islamic calendar. The Prophet would put a representative in Medina to represent him. So that if someone comes to Medina, he wants to see the Prophet, he wants to learn about Islam, there is someone that you can go to. When the Prophet left for this expedition, he appointed this blind man, Ibn Umm Maktoum, who had this disability, to be his representative in Medina. Can you imagine? This shocked his community. They told him, oh great messenger of God, you're appointing a blind man to be your representative? Like how does that work? The Prophet basically told them he's fit to lead. He's decent, he's trustworthy. So what if he's blind? I trust his character. He can lead the prayer. He can take care of the you know, uh, community. That was a beautiful example to show people that one of the rights of the disabled, if they are qualified to carry out a task, give them that position, give them that chance, give them that opportunity. Don't see them as any less than others. So these are some rights that you know we have in in the beautiful religion of Islam. Very yeah, very good so much points. for sharing. Like I think that resonates a lot with our group's mission and like what we're trying to share in, with the community. So. Yeah, and inshallah, Rashad, you want to go? Oh, I was just going to say thank you very much, Sayyid. That was a very, very good explanation. And, uh, thank response. you, brother. Um, and it actually got me thinking. Uh, so in one of your lectures, you speak about the importance of identity and, uh, and how, you know, specifically how we can teach our youth uh, to learn more about their identity. Um, so I was just wondering, you know, if we combine, like, the beauty of creativity and you know, the, the, the importance of teaching and learning and that kind of interaction. How can we teach our youth, any people with disabilities uh, in general, but like specifically our youth, how, we can, how can we teach them at an early age, uh, you know, to learn more about their identity, to understand their identity, and then to translate that into their role in the world? That's a very good question. My, my suggestion is 
when it comes, let's say, to younger members of our society, let's say children, when we're teaching them about their identity, it's very important to focus on the human identity. That you as a child growing up in today's world, you have to see others from the lens of humanity. They are the creation of God. We come from the same source as the Quran says, Adam and Eve and other Abrahamic religions confirm this. Try to see everyone out there as being your family. Children need to be guided by their parents and elders and mentors to truly see that. All other barriers are superficial barriers. They're not real barriers. We're human beings created by God. We are one family. We come from the same source. Children need to see that in developing their own identity. Then when we talk about a subcategory such as disabilities, I think when children are young, we need to remind them that people who struggle in life, children born with birth defects or people with other disabilities, they are actually favored by God. Let's even put a term for them, like the friends of God. Because God is giving them a massive reward for going through this suffering. So let our children see people with disabilities as special people, people who are favored by God. That really helps in how they're going to interact with them in the future, the respect that they're going to have for them. So as the children are developing their identity, um, we need to instill in them that people who are suffering, these people are actually favored by the Almighty God. So if we want to honor our Creator, let's be there for these people. In fact, serving these people is an act of worship, Islam says. People who have disabilities, serving them is an act of worship. You're worshiping God by serving these people. That should be part of their identity as well. So, you know, that's one suggestion. Uh, when it comes to the identity of, of our children and how to um, let them see everyone from the lens of humanity. Very good point, Sayyidna. All right, thank you everyone so much for watching. This has been part one of Discovering Disabilities in Dearborn with Sayyid Muhammad Bakr Al-Bazmini. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.